can have a group of people and then they never really quite make it into a great team because you have to have identity at the core of that. What do you play for and who are you while you're doing so? Hi, everyone, and welcome to another episode of 80% Mental, a podcast series all about the psychology of sport and performance. My name is Dr. Pete Olushaga. I'm joined, as usual, by Hugh Gilmore. Hugh, what have you been up to? Um, not much, Pete. Uh, I suppose uh, it's uh, been interesting weather lately, and uh, I really enjoyed the reception we got from the last uh, episode, uh, episode one, that uh, really set the tone for what's about to happen in the rest of season two. Awesome. Well, it, I think he's referring to an episode we did on uh, critical thinking, which kicked off uh, series two. And in our, in our first series, we explored the nuts and bolts of sports psychology, things like confidence and anxiety. We looked at imagery and goal setting, mindfulness and mindset. And in this series, we're going to explore ideas in sports psychology in a little bit more depth, maybe a little bit more detail. Um, and as you mentioned, the first episode, we talked about critical thinking, about how to think straight about psychology how to separate psychology from the pseudoscience, the nonsense and the, the you know, the absolute quackery. Um, this week, our question is all about teams because we didn't really talk about teams so much in series one. But specifically, it's about team culture. And even more specifically, it's about how to develop and cultivate an environment in which your team can be successful. Do we yell or do we not yell? How do we get team culture right? And Hugh and I are both thrilled to have two amazing guests joining us today. Uh, I think we might have picked the best two guests on the planet, Hugh, do you think? Yeah, I mean, Pete, I'm going to be honest here. Uh, I've never met these two people in my life, but I have heard about them uh, from quite a lot of people. Um, so I think everybody <laughs> that I know knows these two people, but I don't know them. So I'm really excited um, because they seem to be very well thought of and very um, highly esteemed people in the field of sports psychology. And most importantly, my favorite bit, the applied side. So uh, yeah, without further ado, Pete, I think you should uh, let them off the leash. Absolutely. Let's bring them in now. So first up, we have Rebecca Levitt, previously known as Rebecca Symes, who is a sport and performance psychologist and runs a consultancy called Sporting Success and is currently working with GB women's hockey team in the lead up to Tokyo. Um, now, Bex, the, the name change, that, that's not just because you're on the run from the feds, is it? <laughs> I mean, partly that and partly because, uh, yeah, I got married to uh, Nick in September. So we managed to... Uh, get a COVID wedding, shall we say, um, off the ground <laughs> in some oh. form. Well, congratulations, first of all. Congratulations you. on your COVID wedding. But I guess COVID's affected um, some other things as well. So you, you're, you're working with GB Hockey in the lead up to Tokyo. So obviously COVID's had a massive impact there. Yeah, it's, I mean, I think it's been huge across a um, number of different sports and, and the impact it's had. And that's been um, kind of significant for a number of people. Um, it's, in, it's been really interesting moving from the FA over to hockey. Um, and what's interesting at the moment is we're kind of operating, I guess, a bit of a hybrid model where we're able to be together for training, like outside pitch stuff, but all our meetings are happening online. So, yeah, we've kind of got a bit of a, a mix of being in, but also working remotely as well. Yeah, so just like the rest of the world, meetings are yeah, online and everybody absolutely. is Zoomed out. Um, well, thanks for joining us. Uh, really appreciate you, you being here. Me. The second up, Second up, that's not even a phrase. Next up, we've got Pippa Grange, culture coach and performance psychologist. And she's also an author. The 
Chief Culture Officer at the Right to Dream Group, Yorkshire woman, Aussie, and I want to make it clear that Pippa wrote this, not me. She's put definitely 80% mental. So I think you're an absolute perfect fit for our podcast. Uh, Pippa, welcome to 80% Mental. Thanks, Pete. I'm really glad to be here. For those people who are perhaps a little bit unsure, can you just describe what exactly is a culture coach? Yeah, um, it is a bit of a made-up term. Um, I wanted to find a, a, a way of describing the work that wasn't just about the individual. So, you know, bre- the bread and butter work is the performance psychology with the individual. But I found over kind of 20-plus years of experience in the field that um, some of the, mo- the work that shifts performance the most is the work on the environment and the work on the team environment particularly. So that's culture. Um, and, you know, as Mrs. L, as I'll refer to her through this podcast, Rebecca knows <laughs> from our time working together, that's, um, you know, that's a, a really fundamental part of how I work is to um, uh, break down, challenge, work on, rebuild the culture um, that people are operating in. So however great an athlete's um, own psychology and skills are it will be their outputs their results will be influenced very much by the culture that they operate in so I feel like we have to work on both levels that's fascinating and hopefully we'll get into that a little bit more during the episode and I just wonder could you tell us a little bit more about the right to dream group as well yeah um, right to dream are a, um, a social purpose organization as they describe themselves that basically started 20 years ago um, with a guy called Tom Vernon, um, who was a scout for Manu, and and he was working in Africa, and he totally fell in love with Ghana um, and decided to start an academy, uh, a football academy there, which is now the preeminent academy in Africa, definitely sub-Saharan Africa. And um, it provides a pathway for um, young kids who they recruit, started with just boys, who they recruit from eight years old, um, and commit to for for basically their um, school years um, and um, provide uh, pathways into pro football, but also pathways into elite education in the US or the UK, um, Ivy League education. Um, and they, you know, about five years ago, they also bought FC Norgeland, um, which is a Danish club just outside Copenhagen. Um, and they're sort of on the cusp of expanding again now to a sort of more academies and clubs. Um, and they uh, started girls program about seven years ago in Ghana. So really the essence of it is providing opportunities where they might not otherwise exist to showcase talent and to um, have people, you know, flourish in football or in education, whichever way they, they go, but football's the ticket. So they've got I think they've got over 50 kids now with, who've graduated American universities and something similar that have moved on to play, to play pro-European football, which is pretty cool. No, that's awesome. That's absolutely fantastic. And um, if you want to check out any of the work that they're doing, we'll put a link uh, to the website in the description for the episode as well. Um, but thank you both for joining us. I'm, I'm really looking forward, and I know Hugh's looking forward as well, to, to hearing what you have to say about teams and team culture. So... We'll get straight to it, really. And I guess this is a question for either of you to start off with. But what would you say are the defining characteristics of a team? You know, what makes a team different from just a group of a group of people? Yeah, <laughs> I thought I thought Pip was going to go there, but uh, <laughs> I, I sure think. Yeah, I guess there's like a I, the 
defining thing really would be that there's a common goal and a shared purpose and a reason why those people exist together as opposed to just existing as single entities um so that's really important and having a shared sense of what are we about what are we trying to achieve what do we stand for um what's our identity in terms of what do we what do we represent which then influences you know the way we are the way we behave the way we do things um, so I think that that's what probably makes a team stand out just from obviously from individuals um, on their own. And you can get many different forms of team, obviously, you know, in sport in business worlds, music or all, all different varieties. And um, certainly teams are fascinating from a psychological perspective. That's for sure. I think one of the key words that stood out there for me was identity uh, and, and kind of how important that is in a, in a team environment. Uh, Pip, what, what, do you, what do you think about that? Have you got any thoughts on, on identity? Yeah, definitely. I think it's a, a, a critical piece. Um, knowing uh, what you want to achieve is uh, the bedrock, but you also have to know who you are. So, you know, the difference for me, one of the differences for me between a group and a team is the difference between um, being socially connected and relationally connected. So if you're relationally connected, you're in something more like a team, perhaps, um, and that's that has to have identity as a, a key marker of it. So, you know, what do we what are our shared values? Um, what's our shared sense of um, pride? Um, what are the symbols, the language, the rituals, the, um, you know, the guiding uh, principles, the sense of purpose, as Beck said, that connects us? Um, you can have a group of people who are loosely connected socially in that way. Um, and then they never really quite make it into a great team because you have to have identity at the core of that. You know, what do you play for and who are you while you're doing so? We'll, we'll get into some of that in a little bit more depth, I think, later on as well with some of the, some of the questions we've got coming up. But in, in the introduction to the episode, I talked about creating um, an environment that helps a team be successful. And I just wonder when I, t- when I talk about that, when I talk about teams achieving success, what actually springs to mind for you? Because obviously people will have very, very different definitions of what success means. And I, I wonder what, what you make of that. I think for me, I, I mean, loads of things kind of spring to mind. I think hard work, I think passion, dedication, I think the culmination of a journey. I think about success being about having achieved a higher purpose as well, rather than just perhaps an outcome or a result and something over and above just one singular event happening like um yeah I think about kind of what's gone on in the background to help achieve that sense of success and I think sometimes it's about being clear in terms of like what actually success does look like for you and actually making sure that gets defined and not just assumed that everybody's on the same page with what success looks like yeah I I really agree with that Bex um uh, particularly the sort of higher purpose piece um I think there's a for me there's a couple of things there's something about completing uh, completing a process, regardless of what the uh, outcome on the scoreboard was, success is about having completed what you set out to do in some way. So, you know, crossing the finish line literally is is an important part of it. Um, and where people feel like they've failed, there's often a feeling of having not completed um, what they set out to do. The scoreboard obviously matters. You know, we can be romantic about this, but when it comes to success, <laughs> the scoreboard does matter. Um, But I think also um, something that really is um, important in my kind of perspective on this is I think you have to feel success as well as achieve it. 
So where I see that sort of, or where I've um, seen that kind of sense of failure or flatness in um, an outcome, if it's say a silver medal, or if it's a, you know, a semi-final, not a final, um, is, where, is where you haven't really felt the fulfillment and the success in it. Um, it's just, it's really narrowed down to a scoreboard outcome. So I think, as Beck said, important to kind of get that, that feeling in there too. Yeah, I think it's really interesting. I, I, I love the idea of completion being a sort of a, a, a marker of success in some way. Hugh, Hugh, what are you hearing here? What are, you, what are your thoughts? You know, it's interesting that you speak about completeness because I think one of the things where a lot of our listeners uh, will struggle with the idea of culture change is, you know, the vagueness and the, the fluffiness of it. Uh, like, what, what is a culture and, you know, how do you actually make that real? And I suppose... A defining feature of something being complete is that you could obviously state that you know you know what that would look like from the outside and i think you've mentioned the scoreboard's important but i'm really keen to hear like how do you make something that might be vague uh to the outside look complete um what i mean what does a, a value look like whenever it's been lived or whatever whenever you see that being value being executed i'm, I'm just really curious about that you know, I, I think there's something I just want to sort of put out there early on this conversation that there's a difference between something being vague and not scientifically evidenced. You know, in sport, we are so vested in the scientific model and empiricism and in rationality and logic. And I think sometimes fields like psychology or culture have narrowed themselves too much to fit into that box. And we've lost something in that because humans aren't just science we're we're also nature you know there's a lot of mystery that we can't quite nail down um, into a category of some kind so so I challenge the idea that culture's vague it just doesn't fit into the framework that other kinds of sciences do other kinds of sports sciences do um, you know and it's extremely powerful we just don't know quite how to measure it and describe it neatly um, but anybody who's who's kind of worked in that really applied sense will know the absolute difference of having, um, you know, uh, a clear manifesto for who you are, um, a clear set of values and living by them and what that looks like. So Bex and I have done quite a bit of work on that in, in the past at the FA in terms of really understanding, well, what does this look like if it comes to life on the field, you know, in uh, prep camp? Um, you know, in meetings between staff members, what are the behaviours that underpin a lived value? And we go quite far in defining that stuff so that you can meet people where they are that is, okay, this is different to everything else we do on, say, you know, um, pumps and levers and um, biometric markers, for example, you know, different kinds of, of thinking about how we become our best self, how we deliver our best performance it's a different way of thinking, but it doesn't make it less. I think the other thing that made, it started to make me think about there is a couple of things. One, like, and this is definitely something Pip really helped develop my knowledge in, in terms of culture and, and culture being the outcome of the way we do things. You know, most organizations would probably have values. They would say they've got values. Um, they would have maybe a manifesto. They'd have a vision. And that's kind of what we might talk about as culture is kind of articulated. People are able to describe that, but they're able to say what those values are. They're able to describe what a vision looks like. 
But then deep culture is almost that sense of actually what really goes on. So it's great that we might have these values, but are they actually being lived when it comes to it? Like Pip says, in the meetings, are people behaving in a way that is consistent with what they say they're going to do? You know, or actually are there corridor conversations going on? Or actually are there differences between what we say we're going to do and what we're going to do? And that's really the difference between we might be able to articulate what our culture looks like, but actually the culture is really about the reality of what goes on, how we behave, how we interact. And sometimes it's important to kind of make sure we're, you know, particularly if you're in a space when you're working in that, being, you know, ultimately we obviously want alignment between what we say our culture is and what the reality is. And sometimes that's when it doesn't, you know, we don't always have that. Yeah, I mean, I'm, I'm completely behind us here uh, in terms of this idea that, you know, it's a difficult thing to put in a box and, and that doesn't mean it doesn't exist. I think where I hear uh, culture falling apart with people is that people have, you know, shown me lovely booklets uh, that sports have put together. Um, and then, you know, three, four months down the line, turns out that booklet was a lovely booklet. It wasn't actually their culture. And, you know, they've been trawled through the courts and, and things like this. Um, so I think there's like a, a pressure on sports psychologists to be seen as influencing culture and developing that. When I when I did a, a culture presentation uh, to some of the athletes I work with, I put up, you know, the whole Japanese chopsticks because we're going to Tokyo. And then I said, well, you know, you have been eating with knives and forks for your whole life. You can't see that that's part of your culture. So I think it's there's two elements here of like you can't see it, but it's definitely there and it's definitely impactful. And I suppose bringing it alive so people begin to like have the blindfolds removed and can see through how they contribute positively and negatively to that. But like this is where Pip's idea of completeness really struck me. You can only know that you've completed something and get that feeling if you've actually sat and taken the time to define it and make it something that you understand. So that's what I'm really curious about is your processes here, um, which I'm sure we'll get onto later in the podcast. I think I think that's absolutely what you said there, Hugh, like the difference between culture that we might articulate, it might be written, you know, in a really nice booklet versus actually what's the reality of what goes on and actually are we are we doing what we say we're going to be doing or actually does it just look nice and if someone comes into our environment we've got this brilliant poster to show them or we can give them this great booklet but the value of that is is very little if that's not what's being lived and I think the other bit there as well is that culture is absolutely everybody's responsibility and I certainly think you're right about sometimes as practitioners there's that maybe there's that pressure or that's there's that expectation that we're going to come in and change the culture and kind of overhaul it or, or you know work on it and absolutely is our job to open the door on some of these things and facilitate conversations and, and help to move in direction but culture is everybody's responsibility not just one person's responsibility. I just wanted to add a couple of points there that might be valuable for the listeners thinking about culture, you know, and this idea that it's um, it's just kind of an out there thing that we know everybody has to live, as you say, Bex. And, and you know, the other thing we always talk about is that it's live. It's never done. You have to create it every day. But culture does not just sit in behavior alone, right? It does not just sit in behavior alone. Culture lives in your systems. It lives in your symbols. It lives in your language. You know, when I think about culture, I'll think about how does it show up in standards and accountabilities? 
do we have the capacity and the capability in this organization or in this team to do what we say, to do what we've written in the booklet, right? Are people educated um, on how? Do we have a way of, um, you know, making sure it's just not another task on some poor guy's list that, you know, really doesn't know how to step forward with this? Have we put the time into that? Is there um, is there enough energy and well-being in the team to even think about this stuff or is everybody just exhausted? Have we got boundaries? Do we know what the guidelines are? Do we um, are we really clear on vision and purpose? There are there are many ways that you can actually articulate what culture looks like um, and think about it in language. Think about it, particularly in symbols. You know, what does the crest on your on your shirt mean to you? That's a part of culture. So I kind of resist the idea that it's it's kind of esoteric. It has definitely plenty of um, undefinable, um, uh, you know, slippery, not able to be put into the box. But you absolutely can get a hold of it in lots of ways other than values. Values are central, but it's not only that. You can break down <clears throat> how does our system work to create an outcome. So if, for example... You know, you say we really value honesty, but the system doesn't offer any um, opportunity for decent feedback. Nobody's you're not getting to the honesty. Right. That's a, that's a culture flaw. Um, and that's something that you, sh- you can actually work on to create the honesty that you require, the honesty that you desire. So there are many ways that you can pull it apart in legitimately practical terms that aren't just sort of a desirable set of behaviors. And and I think a lot of people miss that when we talk culture. We just think in terms of, perhaps we think in terms of symbols and, um, you know, symbols, rituals and behavior, but not about systems, processes and how they contribute to culture. So we also know, Bex and I have talked about this a lot, but culture, you know, we talk about the culture iceberg. The stuff you can see above the waterline is the stuff that everybody's, um, aware of, you know, what you say you're about, how people behave in um, full sight um, when no, when everybody's looking, you know, and the stuff below the waterline are things like gossip, where the power really sits, whether one coach is a, a real blocker or whether the big dog in the team, is, everybody's going to do what that person says rather than what, you know, um, the official position is. Um, things that sit under the waterline are things like a lack of resource, you know, to to really get things done. They're cultural issues as much as material issues. So, you know, thinking about the waterline um, and and the job of the psychologist or the coach is to keep pu- culture coach is to keep pushing the waterline down, so that you can see more of what's really there and work on it. I'll get off my pedestal now. You know. <laughs> No, uh, I, I want you on your pedestal. That was amazing, um, and it, it's really, it's really speaking to me uh, in the sense that everything you're talking about is like we know what the culture is or should be, and we know what to say it is. And actually, as soon as it's being contraindicated against because somebody's done X behavior or some process or symbol isn't aligned to that, then we go, well, wait a minute, wait a minute, that doesn't align with our culture. And I think it's kind of like, you know, we talk about uh, equality and diversity uh, and things like that, but then some symbols might not represent that uh, within different organizations. Or I can think of uh, a religious leader back in November 
who preaches about uh, certain things in terms of respect for women and celibacy and things like that, but was liking Instagram models um, on their Instagram page. So I suppose that's a point where we get public outcry um, when people actually go against um, go against the values in some sort of behavior or action or process. Yeah, I was just, just going to say, you mentioned that, I think the phrase you said was that, you know, noticing things that, you know, that doesn't fit with our culture. And that's almost like a great example of what Pip was talking about there and going, okay, so if we're in, a, in an environment and a system where you notice, you know, something happening that, does, that doesn't fit with our culture, shall we say? I don't know why I just did air marks. No one can see that. But, um, <laughs> <laughs> but um, is, and the thing, question then is to almost say, but is the, is the culture safe enough that actually if I see something that doesn't fit with our supposed culture, do I feel safe enough to question it? That goes back to the accountability piece Pip was talking about in terms of saying it's all very well having these things but then if, if we don't have an environment a culture that feels safe enough that actually I'm able to speak up and say hang on a minute I don't think that's right that's not how we do things around here then those things go unnoticed which is when you then get this difference between what's you know as Pitt would describe it what above and below the waterline. Hmm. Well I mean, I mean let's talk about that a little bit let's talk about because uh, I think what you're referring to there is psychological safety and this it almost ties in with some of the vagueness that Hugh was talking about earlier and I think it, it's what Hugh and I call these magic psych words and it's not that they're vague it's just that they're often thrown around fairly blindly but aren't particularly well understood so I I don't know if that's fair to say but you know first of all can you just tell us a little bit about what psychological safety actually is and you know why it's important by definition, I guess psychological safety is is when we feel that the environment is safe enough for interpersonal risk. So, i.e., we feel like we're able to speak up, we're able to be ourselves, we're able to give an opinion, we're able to make a mistake, you know, we're able to disagree with somebody, put a different point of view across, all without almost a fear of retribution or a fear of like what people might think of me, what people might say, how that might be received. So, you're kind of talking about a, a sense where there is that safety to be able to be you know yourself and say what you think yeah without that fear of kind of what might come back as a result of that it's also a lot to do with belonging and trust you know the the need to belong in a group is very high um, for us as a human species um, and when um, we feel that something might get in the way of our belonging we we pull back we are not inclined to go there and take that risk. As Beck says, it sort of sits in interpersonal risk. But a couple of examples of where psychological safety might play out in a team. When the coach is standing at the front of the room asking questions and expecting you know, his or her team to answer them, if there isn't a feeling of psychological safety in the room, nobody's putting their hand up or maybe the one go-to person the captain maybe might put their hand up nobody Mm. else is why it's not because they don't know the answer or they haven't got anything really valuable to to contribute it's because they don't want to be embarrassed that they feel that they might be mocked Um, and particularly in some cultures um the idea of that you know I, i have a a thing about banter or like the edge of banter and how that can really be a, a wonderful bonding thing or it can go the other way and make sure people shut up right so when mm. banter is used or weaponized to shame people to call people out to mock I think that that absolutely undermines psychological safety so if you know that you're going to get one in the ribs from the rest of the 
the team as you walk out, if you put your hand up and you're going to be teacher's pet and there's going to be mocking and nobody is breaking that down or addressing that, that's, that's psychological safety at play. What's also really interconnected to that is the dynamics of power within those systems and those groups, because that really influences people's sense of psychological safety and willingness to kind of speak up. Because as soon as someone's in a position of power, you know, we, we know that power can silence people. So that's huge trying to understand sort of the dynamics of that as well. We, we um, Beck and I have done before, we've done uh, some work with a woman called Julie Diamond, um, who does um, the Power Intelligence Index um, and she talks about her book is um, an, um, a user's guide to power, basically. Um, and it's all about power intelligence, how you use power and understanding how things that you might not think about, like banter, um, actually really undermine safety, psychological safety. Um, and, you know, I think that's a, when you can actually talk to people in authority about how they use power. And authority might be, you know teammates uh, that's very very valuable it's interesting hearing you talk about this in terms of um athletes being able to or feeling like they're able to speak up athletes feeling like well not just athletes kind of everybody in the organization but feeling like they're able to speak up feeling like they're able to be themselves and i guess what we're really talking about there is allowing people to show their own vulnerability and in a in an arena like sport and you know, we can talk about the culture. I've just done air marks as well. Uh, the, the culture of, of elite sport, that's quite a difficult thing to achieve, or it can be quite a difficult thing to achieve. Now, I, I'm aware that this is a really big and broad question, but I'm a coach and I'm interested in creating that sort of environment where people can be vulnerable. Where do I even start? I think the first thing you do is notice it and name it. The, cha- the big changes are the small changes in some ways. So when you can actually start to have open, honest conversations about what you're seeing and importantly, what you're feeling and experiencing when it comes to things like this, um, you know, you, you're noticing it. You, ca- you can't do anything about it until you've noticed it and named it. You know, so if there's some kind of um, intervention that starts at fixing the problem before people have even acknowledged openly yes we don't feel safe being vulnerable or yes there's too much fear kicking around or you know uh, we don't really want to put ourselves out there um, on or off the pitch honesty is kind of like a, a behind the scenes thing um, and loyalty is a, mm-hmm. a bigger priority or staying safe in your loyalty is a bigger priority you know and until you can actually even name and talk about those things you, you know the interventions are going to be light on yeah, definitely. We we did a session with the, with the coaches when we were at the FA around power and and just spending a day even just talking about that topic with coaches was fascinating and really eye opening and, and just exactly what Pip says there. Just actually, can we even just start by naming this and understanding what might go on? Because I think particularly a lot of the stuff with some of those dynamics around power happens without people even knowing about it or intentionally doing anything to make it happen. It just happens by by very definition of being in a position of power. And I think the other thing from a coach perspective is to really recognize that the role that they can play in kind of modeling some of the, the behavior and the fallibility and the mistakes. And, you know, because 
if someone in a position of power or a leadership role puts a hand up and says, actually, do you know, I made a mistake, I got this wrong, then actually that again starts to set that environment and say, oh, do you know, actually, it's all right to say around here, I didn't get that quite right, I got that wrong, I need to try again. Mm-hmm. And particularly when we're in kind of elite environments, you've got to make mistakes in order to progress. Because if you don't make mistakes, you're probably never trying anything new. So how do we, or how do leaders kind of almost role model some of the behaviours and, and the, the ways of working that they're also looking for? You? Sorry, I just muted my mic because I was looking something up to <laughs> make an interesting comment. <laughs> you know the devil. <laughs> right. <laughs> um, I suppose the interesting thing about power is, uh, you know, I've recently learned about the power threat meaning framework, uh, which I think is, is something that you're referring to here, guys. And, and I find it really impressive that you've done this with, uh, sat down with a bunch of pro footballers. And we've talked about psychological safety and how somebody feels. I know a person who is a, a lovely person um, and not, you know, not in any way. I might look a little bit physically intimidating because I've got a beard and I'm, I'm fairly tall, right? But this person doesn't have a beard. She's, well, she doesn't have a beard and she's quite small. Um, but because of her status, uh, she can come across as people are afraid to speak up and challenge her within the industry. And I kind of think, you know, there's there's bound to be scenarios where people have power, but are really nice, approachable people. But because of their status, maybe within the industry, like I was going to use the example of Maggie Thatcher, like, because, you know, she's small, you know, female. Like, that's not a good example, is it, Pete? No, I'll change that. Do not speak her name on this podcast. (laughs) (laughs) So if somebody has maybe is an approachable person, is not a threatening person, but they're perceived by another person or a group of people because of maybe the age or or length of career that they've had uh, as being quite powerful and people are afraid to speak up and challenge, what advice would you give to somebody who is, you know, trying their best not to be, uh, not to have that intimidating effect, but maybe does just because of their you know, great skill, for example, in, in what they do. I, th- I think that's exactly it, Hugh. I think it's exactly that point that it's, it's it's not always necessarily to do with what they're doing. It's the very nature of perhaps the role that they um, inhabit or the experience that they've got, the, the nature in itself of that kind of creates that dynamic. I think some of the ways in terms of thinking about how, how do those people overcome it is is to think about really simple things or simple examples would be things like if they're you know hosting a meeting can they try and give their opinion last rather than first because as soon as someone in that position gives their opinion and says well I think this what do the rest of you think then goes back to what Pip was talking about before about that sense of belonging and wanting to fit in and therefore I might not want to go against what kind of the leader of our group is saying so things like you know not speaking up first waiting for people um, actually inviting opinion from other people how much do they actually say I'm really you know I'm really curious I'd love to hear your thoughts Um, And then also thinking about the way in which they respond, because if someone gives their thoughts and then you go, I'm not sure about that, or you brush it off or you quickly move on. And then that that person's response is not necessarily validated or received well, then that means next time that person is probably less likely to um, have that have that experience as well. So I think it's in terms of them goes back to the awareness piece that Pip said in terms of naming it and understanding it in the first place and for people who might hold those positions to kind of perhaps have that sense of awareness around actually do I spend time thinking about how does my position or my experience influence how I might be perceived and received by other people and that's a really great starting point 
Um, and I think just to mention, you mentioned about the power threat framework reference there, which is a um, thing British Psychological Society put together. And that, that's that's about kind of understanding people's own experiences with power. So throughout their childhood, their upbringing, what were their experiences like when they were young in terms of, you know, in the, the relationships they had and how did power play out in those for them and how has that then shaped them as a person? Some of this kind of power work is more about understanding, yeah, through the, through the role in which you... It, um, inhibit or as you say the experience how does that then influence the dynamic so it's a subtle difference yeah so I mean what I'm hearing there is like speak last then also make sure you validate what they say treat it with respect and then also be the person who opens up and asks for feedback three great bits of advice for any leader Pippa I'm sure you have some thoughts here yeah I, um, I think we tend to use a, a way of the way we think about this in terms of power is that you've got to work through the people who are in power. You've got to teach the people who are in power how to use it well, rather than it be the onus be on the person who isn't in power and is intimidated by power. So, you know, it's it's a slightly different sort of approach, as Beck said. But I think um, showing up and being human, <laughs> you know, being just your natural self without wearing a mask and managing your impression as much as you're able to do, which is about your vulnerability as a leader or a powerful person, your willingness to, towards authenticity. That's, that's really the guts of it. But, you know, um, helping people go on a sort of a guided excursion from their comfort zone. If you're the leader, how do I help somebody go further, ask me more, challenge my opinion. Like, how do I actually say, instead of sort of, you know, arms crossed, you know, what's your feedback, which is kind of scary if you're talking to somebody in power to say, I would really like to improve or to explore how I'm performing in some areas. And to do that, I need some honest feedback. Can you partner with me on that? Can I ask you to um, help me think about how I come across in a room? how I come across in a meeting, right? For a leader to do that is extremely powerful and they're helping the individual go on a guided excursion out of their comfort zone to deal with power, to help the power dynamic, right? So the onus is on the leader or the powerful person in that kind of model. I think also as the leader, as Beck said, you have to create the conditions, which might be, you know, that's a great example of, of speaking last or, um, you know, setting the tone for sometimes it's even the trappings of where you might have exchanges, like if it's in a scary meeting room or if you're kind of sitting around having a coffee. Those small things make a difference of how you communicate and converse and how you change power. Listening to both of you talk there, some of those things are actually really quite simple things, like really simple things, speaking last understanding the way that you're standing and how that can have an impact on you know the way that people perceive you they're very simple things to do and simple things to, to perhaps correct but I think as you've both mentioned that the really important thing there is about awareness of those things existing in the first place and being well again it's vulnerable isn't it it's vulnerability is being aware uh, understanding that those things can have an impact and being willing to to, to make a, a change to some of those things. We're here with Pippa Grange and Bex Levitt, and we're talking about all things to do with teams and team culture. And we've heard some really fascinating stuff so far. 
If you are enjoying what you're hearing, do remember that you can subscribe on the website, www.80percentmental.com, or you can tweet us at EPM Podcast. And we would love to hear your thoughts on team culture. What are some of the teams that you have played for or coached if you're a coach? And how have you set up team culture? What are your experiences of good culture versus what we might describe as a, a bad culture, whatever that might be? So we'd love to hear your thoughts. Uh, so do get in touch. Um, Hugh, we've just been talking about uh, leaders and them being aware of perhaps uh, some of the power dynamics. I know you had a question about uh, leadership that you wanted to, to maybe throw in here. Yeah, Pete, you know, I, I get somewhat frustrated, uh, maybe even angry at uh, some of the things that get put out as, you know, great advice. And it because it's because it comes from great advice from already successful people. And I think sometimes when successful people give advice, it's nearly like, these are my lottery numbers. This is what worked for me, as opposed to something solid. So one of the things I've heard is that in Netflix, that one of the principles is move fast and, and break stuff. And Netflix is a successful organization. But I also think like that to me sounds like breaking rules and like what rules are you allowed to break? And at what point does that have contraindications? But then, you know, We've all heard this sweep the sheds, like the, the legacy uh, book and the All Blacks. I mean, that's that's really interesting because you know they talk about being humble and you see other rugby teams and, and people putting out this idea of legacy and sweep the sheds and and it's weird for me. I, I don't understand it because I, you know I spoke to David Epstein um, and asked him this question: Why are the the All Blacks um, really successful? And he said, well, they're not, it's actually rugby is an underdeveloped sport played by very few people. And actually the culture of New Zealand uh, is probably more what makes uh, the All Blacks successful than them actually being a really successful team and having successful processes. And I think I, I listened to a talk whereby there was things that were said in in how they handled things and they were attributed as being really quick to address failure, but actually the guy said it took two weeks for them to get over that emotional kind of uh, issue. And I thought that's not quick to address failure. That's two weeks to address failure. So I suppose the question I have for you, Pippa and Bex, is when teams are successful, how do you remain critical of their success in such a way that you don't create this aura of, of false narrative and that you can still continue to grow without this kind of one way utopian advice? I think, um, you know, that's a, that's a really interesting um, observation from, from David Epstein on the, on the All Blacks. Um, you know, it takes many things to become successful um, and we definitely over-romanticise, you know, something like Sweep the Sheds becomes a single tagline that's over-romanticised. Um, but it's got essence that matters to it. You know, I, I think that you can't deny the success of a of an All Blacks um, because it's sustained. It's not, it, you know, they didn't get lucky. This has been sustained over time and the systems of success are very strong, whether it's um, an underdeveloped sport, um, as he says, or, or otherwise. So I kind of disagree a little bit there that there's, there's um, not, a, you know, that that doesn't represent success. Success isn't scale or level of maturity. Success is about, as we said at the start of the podcast, the start of the conversation, success has many different factors and they would have to be 
um, a, a bastion of that. However, to answer the question, I think that there's a couple of really important points when you're already successful. How do you how do you keep um, critical about success? One thing is get rid of the romance, <laughs> you know, so don't ever allow yourself to hang your hat on the fact that you were good or you've been good. And you kind of, you know, it's very, very seductive to want to stay with the success. It, it feels much better than the failure. Um, but, you know, I, I think being um, uh, relentless in trying to understand how you're performing is really valuable. So, you know, appraising whether you win or lose, um, but not so much that you're down to every detail and it becomes just exhausting. Going through the same even better if process what how would how would we have been even better if what would a 10% uplift have look, looked like even if we won what do we want to stop start keep you've got to you've got to see both sides of success you know what inhibited it um, and what contributed to it and and I think this the sort of continuity and ritual of those processes regardless of the outcome is very very valuable in sustaining a success mentality and romance isn't useful. Romance is, you know, uh, um, the, the thrill of winning and the enjoyment of being a winner. You know, we don't want to get rid of that. That's that's sort of central to the experience of, of a sporting career, hopefully. Um, but it doesn't get in the way of um, rigorous understanding of what makes you successful or otherwise. Otherwise, how do we learn? You know, we're repeating the familiar rather than adapting to the new. And, and that's the difference between constant evolution towards success and staying where you are. Yeah, I totally agree with everything Pip said there. I definitely think it's that sense of having some kind of critical reflection questions that you come back to that enable you to kind of keep striving and, and moving forward. Um, the, the other thing that it made me think of you when you were, you were speaking there and to Pip's point about kind of the romanticizing of things is that I think that there seems to be a sense that like, oh, well, you know, the culture over here, let's take the, the All Blacks is like sweep the sheds. So that means we need to sweep the sheds. And it's about understanding culture is really unique and it's, it's specific to the people that are in it at that particular point in time. And you can't just pick someone else's culture up and, in, in, you know, implement it in your environment. It's about co-creating it and understanding what's right for th this particular team at this particular point in time on this particular journey. And as Pip said earlier, Culture is never something that's done. It's constantly changing and evolving um, as time goes on. So I think we've got to be really careful that, yes, it's brilliant to hear about other people's cultures and understand, but it's not about kind of, you know, a stick and paste from somebody else's culture into ours. You mentioned the Netflix thing about, um, I think you said they, what is it, move fast and break things. And it's kind of going, well, what, what does that mean? Maybe it's brilliant that we don't know what that means because we're not in that environment. So therefore, maybe we shouldn't know what that means. But to them that means something. So we can totally try and put an interpretation on it, but we might be completely wrong. So I think it's about recognizing that sense of going, each culture and environment is unique, rightly so. And it's about, if you're trying to develop the culture, absolutely look to others for inspiration maybe, but recognize that it's not a stick and paste job. Yeah, great, great point, Bex. I, I, think, I think the Netflix, you know, move fast and break stuff is about being in an environment where constant innovation um, and moving beyond the rules of today or the frameworks of today is necessary sometimes in sport it's about brilliant basics it's the opposite that you want you know you want consistency um, rather than constant innovation it depends on where you are so you know it's contextual as you say Beck. I, I really like those points um, and I think this is 
This is interesting because quite often, you know, as sports psychs, we can always be looking at it from the outside into another culture to try and learn because we're keen to learn. But actually, that can leave us in a place where we're interpreting things without a real understanding. And I suppose that's like looking in through a shop window and trying to taste the bread on the other side. Like, it doesn't work. <laughs> um, so the thing that um, I've heard about culture is that culture is actually like making bread in that we can all, you know, know the ingredients but actually the environment and the process for making it and you've mentioned co-creation there uh bex that idea that you know it's not just the ingredients it's the creation of it and the process that has as much impact as the ingredients i think that's a real message to take away from that Pitt mentioned there, I don't know if this is if this is relevant and if I'm going down a different track, tell me. But like Pitt mentioned there about obviously the Netflix thing and actually maybe um, their statement there is about the kind of the innovation and the creativity and the and, and that's one of the things we were talking earlier about that kind of sense of psychological safety. One of the reasons like psychological safety is so important is because, you know, we know it enables people to innovate, to be creative. Um, it helps improve learning, it helps engagement. So some of these kind of concepts that might, you know, you can't always kind of articulate as much but are so important because of the implications of what of what that means i guess i'm i'm hearing or i'm, I'm picking up on a couple of things that i hear I, I think what what you were talking about initially here was maybe this idea of like survivor bias where people who are kind of highly successful and then give their rules for how to be highly successful well actually there's like a million other people who've done exactly the same thing they just haven't been successful for the myriad of other reasons that you know go into that but i do like the point about even if we do look at those people uh, and, and do look at those cultures that we might describe as successful not to romanticize them and to kind of understand that actually what works for in, in some situations in some organizations might not work in others um speaking of of netflix because you've been talking about that a little bit i've been watching um the playbook on Netflix. I don't know if any of you have seen that. It's a, it's a series of interviews with some really successful coaches. And in it, they discuss their, their rules, which is essentially their coaching philosophies. And there's some really different personalities on there. We've got uh, Jill Ellis, who won, I think, two World Cups with the USA women's soccer team. Um, I think she won an Olympics as well. We've got Doc Rivers, who won a men's NBA title with the Celtics. Uh, Patrick Muratoglu, tennis, who worked with Serena Williams and uh, Jose Mourinho. So despite all of the differences in um, their philosophies and their rules as they describe them on the program, there was actually one thing that I noticed linked them all together. Uh, and that was the idea of family. Uh, seeing their teams and their staff members almost as an extended family. And, you know, we've just been talking about romanticizing uh, so, some of the things that we might read about. Is that, in your experience with the teams that you've worked with, the cultures that you've been embedded in, is that something that's important or is that just fluffy nonsense that just sounds lovely? What, what, what do you think? <laughs> for, for me, I think that the, um, the stuff that is important in it is sense of belonging and closeness, right? So I um, I talk about in um, in my book the uh, the benefits of intimacy, you know, and it's like this oh my god word, like nobody go near that in elite sport, you know, it's 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 get the job done. But intimacy for me is about um, showing up as your authentic self and being willing to meet somebody as their authentic self um, and just do you, just just be real 
um, that creates the conditions for intimacy. And when you really know somebody else, as you do in a family, you will go a lot further for them. You will be more vulnerable. You There will be more honesty um, necessar- necessarily as an outcome of that kind of intimacy or closeness, real closeness. And, and it inevitably leads to more sense of belonging. However, families have drama, right? <laughs> I don't know about your family, but mine's got <laughs> plenty. Um and, and, you know, the, the Brady Bunch is a myth. So f- when we think family, I like the idea of family in some ways because families are, uh, you know, chaotic and dramatic and full of dynamics as teams are. Mm-hmm. If, we, if we actually don't romanticize the notion of a family, it's a, it's a good analogy for all the chaos and, and um, expectation and um, dynamic that is within that kind of small group, if you like. If you don't, if you don't get to that closeness and that sense of belonging what can happen when we use that title of family is that what you mean is i expect blind loyalty and i've got problems with blind loyalty from a a psychological performance point of view i think blind loyalty is a problem that gets in the way of honesty Mm. and definitely in the way of intimacy loyalty is fine blind loyalty is a problem so yeah family for me as is fine as long as you understand that family is not always gorgeous yeah, that, that's. Li- I have nothing to add. That is literally exactly <laughs> bang on. <laughs> I'd say. I, I think that's that bit about family is the first thing I think of is going. It's a great analogy because families don't always go on, and most often, you know, you do get honesty sometimes from from family members. It's a it's a beautiful analogy. Um, I think it, you know you've also drawn a parallel there of like you know this idea of blind lo- loyalty. If you if you come from a, a disadvantaged background where maybe your family upbringing. Uh, or your relationships with members of your family haven't been great you know there are circumstances when you need to not stop being loyal to family members and that's more down the clinical side of 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 psychology whereby how to manage toxic family members or know when to draw a line Uh, and I think you know you highlight a really important point there about like knowing when to draw the line on those relationships and I imagine that's part of culture too is like drawing lines and things and knowing what you don't stand for um i'm really curious like is there something around drawing lines that you guys would advise people on how to do that with the team and and how they you know set standards of non-negotiable unacceptables and and how does that process look like i i think that um it's it is really important it's a great point you raised hugh because um you know sometimes in the when you really want to belong and a, a team has meaning for you at deep levels. You know, it's maybe been part of your dream or your ambition for a long period of time, and finally you're there. You know, you may be more inclined to accept toxic relationships than you might have otherwise been, and that, ca- and especially if the leader of that team is demanding loyalty, um, you know, that can that can trip up into um, toxic relationships. Um, it's, it's not necessarily that way, but it certainly can. And it's absolutely critical to um, to have boundaries. Sometimes that's the most challenging part of the Sykes role, you know, to be the person who will go and say, hey, that's not it. That's that's actually toxic. That's I mean, that's a strong word. Um, but, you know, that's that is creating fear that is bringing negativity. And we know that negativity is going to inhibit the, what you get from these these players so they do definitely you do definitely have to set boundaries and leadership groups can do that also um, but 
you know, I think a, a, a really critical point. You, it's not, um, you don't accept too much. I was going to ask this a little bit later on, but now seems like as good a time as any because I know we have a lot of uh, trainee psychs who are listening to this uh, podcast. So if I'm a, a psychologist embedded within a team, maybe for the first time, um, there's two questions really. The first is how do I navigate that fine line between really wanting to be useful and like wanting to you know to help and just fitting into what already exists. And the, the second part of the question alludes to what we've just been talking about, that, and that is, if, if I walk into a situation or a culture that we might describe as toxic, how do I approach that? You know, what, what, what do I do? Any, any advice or tips as to how you might manage a situation like that? Because it can be really difficult. I think in relation to that first question, and I'm sure lots of people listening have you know, experienced this, and I, I remember going into teams for the first time, there is, there is definitely, I think we, we psychologists are human just like anybody else and have all the same fears and anxieties and vulnerabilities as everybody else in terms of, am I going to fit in? Am I going to be accepted? What's the perception of psychology here? I think one of the most important things to do when you go in, and, and it's hard, is almost that that sense of, making sure you're really clear up front with whoever you're working with in terms of what what is it you're there to do and what is it you're there to work on and kind of contracting up front around around what your your purpose of you being there for is and it's an interesting one because that often gets talked about going right where's the quick win where's the low-hanging fruit where's the bit I can quickly make an impact within the first few days of being in that everyone then wants me to be here going back to that sense of you know I want to belong I want to fit in and don't get me wrong I, I do think there is value in that but I also think there's value in trying to have a sense of not doing too much too quickly because you do need to understand and build relationships and get a sense of what's going on and be really clear about your remit and your role and sometimes if you jump you know jump in too quickly actually you might not necessarily have a chance for your own to really formulate your own views and um, thoughts about what's going on and, and see what the environment is like and what the existing culture is like and what's happening. T- totally agree Bex it's, it's almost the bravest conversation you have as a psych when you start with the team is the first conversation with the coach about what is and what is not on the table, you know, and asking the right kind of questions there. I always feel like, you know, I say brave, but courage and compassion should always be deployed together. <laughs> and I, I think, you know, for yourself as well, um, you know, but being in that conversation and saying, are you actually, are you open to feedback? Would you like me to give you feedback on your performance as a coach? Um, you know, how do you see the role um, and I, I also find myself now at this stage of my career talking to the coaches or the leaders of that um, organization or team about what usually doesn't work when a psych goes into a mm-hmm. team and how um, how the psychology service becomes sidelined because it's the tough stuff, you know, and how might we agree uh, to get beyond that. So, you know, that upfront contracting conversation as Beck says is super important I think the other point for young psychs um, in the field trainee psychs is to understand that you need to be genuine not just supervision which is a given um, but you need to be held by your colleagues your you know the peer network of psychologists that you have you know is so important 
that you can you know you can go and kind of say oh I really got this wrong or this was a really tough conversation with a peer in the field somewhere else you know and you actually feel like you're developing your practice and you've got a space to renew your energy um you know in collaboration with other people so your networks of other psychologists I still have you know a handful of psychologists that I regularly connect with um on you know all right I've got a, a really gnarly one here um I don't think I framed this right. Can I talk about it? You know, that's mm-hmm. that's super valuable. Or just like, you know, I'm exhausted. I can't do it. Whatever I'm feeling at that particular <laughs> moment, you know, to to have those conversations. And it's it's brilliantly useful. So never, ever allow yourself to go solo for too long. I think that's really um, important. And I think... I joined the FA back in 2016 and I joined having had 10 years as kind of a solo practitioner and yes, I'd had supervision and yes, I knew of other people. One of the things I really valued when I joined the FA and when Pip came along was that sense of team and working with other psychologists, which actually I think is quite a rarity to be in the same sport within a group of other psychologists. It's rare, but it was so valuable. And I think one of the things that Pip really did for our team was really encouraging that sense of like, kind of shared discussion, shared conversation, talking about how we were feeling, talking about what had happened. And that that was just invaluable. And, you know, we used to have sessions where we pit ran a session with us once all about emotion and talking about emotion and what it is for us as psychologists. It was honestly one of the most powerful sessions I think I've ever done. And it kind of really makes you realise how important for your own sense of self and, and as a practitioner that that kind of stuff becomes. And I think yeah, if you are a kind of solo practitioner, as Pip says, do reach out and build a network with other psychologists because that is really valuable. Yeah, I think that's absolutely fantastic advice. Um, w- what about the second part of the question then? Because that was about yeah, we avoided walking that into a culture. <laughs> that, that, that was about walking into a culture that we might think about as being somewhat toxic. How do we navigate that? I mean, I think that's a tough question, if I'm honest. I don't know. I'd be on the phone so, to Pip. So, <laughs> what are you thinking about? Are you thinking about, can you be any more like you thinking about explicitly there, Pete, in terms of like what? Okay. Um, okay. Let's say, for example, we walk into a team and there's a, a culture of bullying, for example. If it's actually a culture of bullying, I'm going straight for it. You know, um, I think we've seen enough in sport to see that that is not acceptable. So there are things that you tolerate that you think that you that you know that you can work with over time. Um, and when I spoke about banter and the edge of banter before, I will always work with that. I will always, you know, find a way to navigate that. If it's bullying and people are being harmed, I'm going straight for it at whatever cost, mm-hmm. not tolerating it. And that means I'm tackling it with the coach. I'm assuming, you know, a coach was bullying in that situation or the athlete I'll tackle it directly and I'll take it to the top. And that is always consequential. I've, I've had to do it a couple mm. of times. It is consequential and it's really hard to rebuild from there, but it's not acceptable. So I never let that one lie if it's actual bullying. However, there are shades mm. of bullying, right? It's on a continuum and there are lots, lots of things at the bottom end of the continuum that you think could become bullying. Those we work with, with courage and compassion. Um, and that's about, ex, you know, again, naming it one-on-one with the bully, um, talking about how it inhibits, how, how fear and negativity have such a cost on the mental rent people pay in the environment and how that gets in the way of performance and well-being. 
um, understanding that bullying is a power play. Um, you know, there's so much work that you can, done, can do on the lower end. But if it's actually explicit bullying, go straight for the jugular. I, I totally agree with what Pip said there. I feel like there's also a sense of reality is not the right word, but like I think if you've got if you're listening as a young practitioner, I think that's really hard to do. I'm not saying it's not right to do. It's hundred percent right to do, but that is such a tough thing to it's do. So and Pip is speaking here from a position of a huge amount of experience, and I think it's worth kind of recognizing that. And she's got brilliant experience of having done that and knowledge and understanding and yeah absolutely that is the right thing to do no doubt but I think it's I just want to make sure we reference the fact that that is not easy to do yeah I mean we've had that conversation uh or conversations like that before on the podcast in series one we talked about the idea of you know are, are you willing to to lose your job are you willing to damage your reputation for speaking out yeah because yeah. you're staying true to your values you know what you feel is important and uh, as you correctly uh, say bex you know w- w- we can talk about that from a position of what is essentially privilege you know established in the field well respected in the field it's, it's easier for me to stand up for what i believe in with the threat of you know losing my job or whatever than it is for a, a, a first year psychologist who's you know just on the job wants to make a good impression wants to build their reputation so I, yeah, I think you're right to to frame it in that way that we're talking about this from a position of, of, of relative privilege, I guess. But yeah. it's a question that's important. You know, are you willing to do what what's I guess right, what you believe in, um, or are you willing to sacrifice your values? Um, it's it's it, there's no right or wrong answer to that question, but it's no, a question that we it, need to ask. I think it it also highlights, though, Pete, the, the journey that you probably need to go not you, but a psychologist needs to go, you know, needs to go on as part of their experience and their supervision and their training is kind of tr- answering some of those questions exactly that you've put them there. Like, do you know what your boundaries are? Do you know what your values are? What your philosophies are coming from? Because that will absolutely drive your practice. And I look back now to kind of, I don't know, 12, 13, 14 years ago, like I've hugely changed as a psychologist in that time and the way you know just through experience and what you learn and how you develop and all the rest of it so and everybody will in their own journey and I'm sure I you know absolutely will continue to go forward but I, I think if I look back to when I started out as a practitioner those questions were not questions I was asking and I would now be here thinking they're questions I should have been asking and I hope that you know things move on and we understand more but they're definitely questions for young practitioners to think about that I totally did not think about, but would have been amazing if I had at the time. But there's things I've had to come to later in my career, if you like. Thank you for the challenge on that, guys. That's you're you're totally right. That's coming from 25 years of experience of of you know now knowing how to do that that I did not know how to do as a first year practitioner. Um, I, I guess what I would add is if you know it's wrong if you know something is wrong the question is how to voice your values you know so you might need to get support on that you might need to find a friendly ally you might need to rehearse you might need to um you know uh defer to your boss or to somebody else um around Mm -hmm. that um i still think the point the essence of the point remains that there is a a a line that we don't tolerate or can't tolerate without too much cost to ourselves and to the athletes that we're that we're there to serve 
um, that is bullying. So it's a question of how, you know, what I described was what was on my mind as I described what I do is very much honed through experience and, and tough experience of doing that many years on. Mm-hmm. So, yeah, I appreciate that challenge. But but the, the essence of how do you voice your values when you get to that difficult point how do you come back to your supervisor? How do you come to your peer network? How, who do you go to within that organization to say, I've got a problem with this bit. How can I, how can I move forward? You know, and it doesn't have to be, I, I use the term go for the jugular, you know, that's, that's a bit overdramatic, but you know, it's about, <laughs> it, it's about um, how do you not accept that status quo of bullying? Hugh, what are your thoughts on all of this? You know, um, I've been listening. This has been an excellent education for me. And I think uh, Pippa and Bex have, have probably uh, not not uh, realized that they've already given the answer to this. I, I feel in, in some of the things that they've said, which is this idea of co-creation uh, and asking people, like, what is it What is it you stand for and, and what's unacceptable here when it comes to bullying? So, you know... I suppose my, from what I'm taking away from the, this podcast so far is that, you know, it's okay for us to, to go in and say, guys, uh, is this a problem? Um, do these things cause us uh, to lose performance or do these things create a poor environment for us to train in uh, and co-create and solve that problem with the athletes? Because I think, uh, as Pippa highlighted, this is a gray area between the banter line of like, let's work up to that banter line. But my goodness, you know, let's not ever be at that line of bullying. And in between that, you know, that's four or five miles long, I think. Um, and we really need to navigate that. And I think Richard Feynman said, um, you know, I'd rather have questions that can't be answered than questions that can't be asked. So I think if you're in an environment where you can't ask questions, that's always going to be uh, an unsafe, a psychologically unsafe environment, but you should always be allowed to ask questions in an environment. And I think asking the people the questions is that's, is a way to navigate that gray line. I suppose the other thing that really strikes me here is that Pippa and Bex have talked about the idea of the practitioner being, you know, the often the first person to speak up and the first person to take a stand. And I'm reminded of, reminded of Che Guevara's um, quote from Guerrilla Warfare, which sounds like it's completely unrelated to psychology. But what he said, and by the way, I don't in any way endorse uh, all of what he's done. You know, um, he was better than the person before, but maybe not as good as he should have been. So, look, let's leave politics out of the podcast. But the the lesson that we can learn from it is that he said. Uh, to create a revolution, uh, or sorry, the act of revolution itself creates the necessary conditions for revolution to be successful. And if you think about it, the first act that you take as a sports psychologist will be the act of speaking up, and that can create the landslide of change. So you never know how impactful you might be by speaking up and being the first person to say, is this okay? Yeah, I think, I think that's a fair point. And just, just to you t- talk about that thing of kind of the asking the questions, I think just an important kind of practical point here is like the way in which you ask the questions is so important. Like, you know, if you go in and you say, well, why have you done that? Why did you berate the athlete? Why did you, um, you know, speak to your fellow player in that way? You know, the very nature of the word why often creates a defensive response in people as opposed to saying, oh, I'm really curious, um, you know, how, 
you know, the reason you chose to put your message across in that way, or I'm really curious as to, um, you know, what the reasons were you took that action for. So coming from that point of curiosity, I find can disarm people straight away. So you don't then get that defensive response. So even just from a practical point of view, just being clear on your language and, and the way you approach the questions you're going to ask. Yeah, I, I try and do that with my three-year-old. <laughs> That's a whole other world, she, she, likes, she likes to ask why. I, I like to ask, was there something in particular that made you want to do that? <laughs> um, that comes up quite a lot. <laughs> I, I was just going to add as well, I, I love that, Bex, but um, that's I would say you know, another useful question in that, in, in that moment is, what were you feeling um, to the coach? What was going on for you um, when you expressed yourself? in that way you know because bullying often the source of bullying um often has fear in it for the individual as well you know so we can unpack that quite a lot with somebody to to just illuminate for them the intensity of their communication for example because these things become habits pretty quickly Um, and i think once you know that's a way of opening the door i think important to say as well on how you how you address it you don't have to be heroic, you know, um, it, it doesn't have to be aggressive or heroic to challenge bullying. It can be subtle and impactful. It can be the most quiet, influential conversation that bully has ever had, um, where people, write, somebody puts on the table the thing that's been troubling her or him for a long time too, you know, so... Um, or, or that they might not even be have any awareness of. So, you know, style is um, very uh, negotiable in this, very important to, and again, contextualized to the individual. But it definitely doesn't have to be heroic acts of, of sort of courage. Courage is, um, you know, often uh, uh, quite subtle. Hugh, where do we want to go from here? Because we've moved things around a little bit. We have... Uh... People often talk about organizational values and um, I, I find this interesting because, you know, often we have these nice, lovely words written up on a wall. And I think your your guys' experience of working with professional footballers who all come from maybe different back, backgrounds. And, and I, I'm reminded of a talk I went to before by a professional footballer who had done a PhD in psychology. And he talked about how the average footballer you know has had a a range of different experiences and different um uh upbringings and therefore there's not often a a lot of common ground between different footballers from different backgrounds in different countries um i'm really keen like how do you bring like 50 people together um how do you make a team out of people who have different values and, and different upbringings different experiences you know and different expectations and goals that sounds complicated and messy and I need help. <laughs> um, well, you can't. You can't um, just expect fifty people to just, you know, buy in and on board to the values straight away. Um, there's a couple of things. Values are not the same as rules, right? You can never impose values. I hate it when I I go into a team and I see that the values have been decreed from on high or the coach has designed the values and asked everybody else to get on board and behave that way. Never, ever works, really. It might You might get a sheen, a veneer, a superficial buy-in, or it might work for a summer, but it's not real. So you have to remember that you cannot impose values, and they're not the same of rules. To create values in a team, 
basically you can suggest a framework of things that inspire you as the organization or the team, you know, the custodians of the team. But you have to recognize that values are aspirational. You have to invite people to uh, be part of that aspiration. Um, you have to discuss it with them. You have to say, what does honesty, if for an example, or respect, what does that mean in your world? How do you see that? What does that look like through your window? Um, and then to get, again, as Beck, to Beck's um, term to co-create, you know, you, you might have four values on your list or five values, six values on your list, but you you have to explore what they mean. You know, I think Seligman and, and the, most of the work on values across the world has shown that there are really only about 12 values that we share as humanity that have many manifestations or expressions in each. So we're not going to be far off if we've got something like respect or honesty. But the point is, how do they then have meaning for the group that you're working with? And if you say, um, I expect that our values are honesty, respect, loyalty and relentlessness, for example, you really not you really not. That's not it. You have to say, here is some things on my mind. If you're the coach or the leader. Here are some things that I think matter, and this is what's mattered on my journey. Tell me about yours. Let's find the middle ground. Let's find the thing that works for this context, for this team. So it takes longer, and it's but it sticks longer too. Um, and you, ha you have to recognize that when you set a value framework, it's an invitation for people to get on board with that, to um, take on those values. It's an invitation, and you reward them for what works. You express it, you discuss it, you revise it, um, you know, and you give new examples. So, for example, um, in Right to Dream at the moment, we have a, a manifesto rather than a, a set of values. And one of my roles is each year I spend I will spend time with every leader in the business talking about what that set of manifesto points means for them this year. How is it different to last year? How is it live? How will they bring that to the table this year what did they do well last year it's a it's a discussion values are a you know setting values and buying into values are a continuous discussion but people have to love it people have to feel it and see um you know the reward in it um you, and you you know number one you cannot impose them and they're not rules and i think i think the thing the pip, pip, pip says there about you know like making sure that there's there's the understanding of what do these mean to you and your team if you think about that from an organizational perspective or a football club or you know rugby club whatever it is where you've got you know different age groups as well and you might have some common um, themes across the club in terms of in terms of the values but really understanding what something what what a value means to say a 15 year old is going to be very different to what it means to a senior player and so it's about understanding that sense of let's take pip's example there of going you know honesty respect relentlessness well what does relentless mean when you're a senior pro and what does relentless mean when you're under 15 and you're in for your first camp so i think it's about understanding the, the differences between different age groups if you're talking about from an organizational perspective as well and and accepting that it's okay that there'll be differences within those. And that's really important that there are, there are differences because it absolutely developmentally means different things to, to different people as well. I think the other bit about that is, you know, one of your questions at the start was that people have different values. I th you know, I think the big thing here as well is recognizing the importance of 
appreciating that and appreciating the difference that every single person that's coming into a team has come from a different background, a different experience, different upbringing. And that's what makes a team so rich and amazing. And actually, how much do we really value the diversity that we have in the team? Because we know that diversity can be a strength if we really, truly appreciate it. And actually spending time getting to know each other as people and understanding each other is really invaluable as well, work to do within a team. So just following on from that, I just wonder if there's a difference between uh, team culture and organizational culture. And it might be, you know, I might be playing semantics here, but I just wonder, are they the same thing? Can they be different? Um, You know, maybe you have multiple squads or teams within an organization. What's important to think about there? How do we pull all that stuff together or do we even need to pull it together? Yeah, I think I think there is a difference in that, you know, each team is going to be unique. Each team is operating in its own kind of experience of what they're trying to achieve, the stage that they're at. Um, you know, are they in competitive season, not competitive season, etc. But I think what what's important is that overall there is like kind of almost like a unifying vision um, that the organization has that all these kind of teams um, are working towards as well. And then within that, they'll have their own version of, you know, what's important to them as a team and what they're trying to team as a team. But it's almost like there's an overriding kind of, um, what do you call it, like a branch of, not branch, but you know what I mean? Like a sort of something that sits at the top that all teams are kind of aspiring towards, say like, you know, inspire the next generation, let's say, for example, um, that might be an organisational um, factor, but but equally understanding that each team within that organisation might be kind of its own micro kind of climate, let's say. Mm-hmm. I think an organisation just has many more layers, you know, uh, but uh, an overarching framework can definitely be, relevant and very useful um you know for an an organizational level that all teams fit under um but you know a team is kind of like a closer microcosm of culture it's much more manageable than an organizational culture you know there's much more um veering towards conformity and rules in an organizational culture than there is in a team Mm -hmm. you know it's a team's easier i would say um or or less unwieldy (laughs) (laughs) so i guess just to to kind of to wrap up with then um you've given us some absolutely amazing advice so far but if you were starting from scratch you know if you're a coach who's moving to a a new team what's one bit of advice that you might give them for establishing a team culture if you could pick one thing that you would say to them for me, it would be the co-creation. It would be the sense of like not coming in with a preconceived idea of exactly what this group is going to be or how, how you expect them to perform and how they're expected to be. It's about being open to everyone that's going to be part of that team, having a view and an input and kind of co-creating what that culture looks like. And I would add um, for a coach coming into a team, you know, uh, gather some tools that help you talk about what you mean by culture so you know the graphic of the iceberg for example and what sits above the waterline and below or you know I use a culture wheel with um, sort of eight different factors and can you know talk about how culture comes to life Um, I I use uh, in the past I've used videos um, you know or even ask people to watch films and then come back and discuss how culture plays out you know um, and what I even mean by culture So, um, you know, I think as a new coach going in, find some tools and um, support materials to help you describe what you mean 
before you start co-creating. And that's, you know, then it's on the table. It's, you know, it's actually a topic, um, a relevant agenda item rather than this kind of thing in the corner that everyone knows is really important, but nobody quite knows how to address. (laughs) (laughs) Guys, uh, look, uh, this has been outstanding. Um, It's nice to have you both on here and nice to see you both uh, finally and and get to meet you. So uh, you definitely haven't disappointed in terms of what your reputation brung. (laughs) So thank you very much. (laughs) (laughs) Um, I think, I think the other thing is there, Pete, apologies. I think morning podcasts are right because I, I don't think I've ever been so clumsy with all my words and, and anecdotes there. So we have a bit of editing to do. <laughs> yeah, I mean, I'm not, I'm not sure that's really true, to be honest with you. <laughs> <laughs> so it's been an absolutely fantastic uh, podcast, Hugh. I think it's been my favorite one so far. Um and I just want to say a huge thank you to our guests um, for joining us and giving their, their invaluable insights. So thank you very much to uh, Bex Levitt. Thank you. It's been an absolute pleasure. I've really enjoyed it. And thank you to Pippa Grange as well. My pleasure. Thanks, Pete and Hugh, for having me. And it's great to see you again, Mrs. L. <laughs> you too. <laughs> Should do it more often. Yeah. Thank you both. It's been absolutely, absolutely brilliant. So we've had a really informative podcast today and I hope you've enjoyed what you've heard. We've talked about definitions of what success might look like in a team environment. We've talked about culture and what was really interesting for me was hearing about culture as an outcome uh, of values and behaviors and systems uh, rather than something that perhaps we, we, we start with. We talked about psychological safety, environments where people are allowed to be themselves and to be vulnerable. Um, We learned about maybe some of the dangers of romanticizing what we might see as winning cultures, but also some of the lessons that we can learn from those really successful cultures. And we've had some absolutely invaluable advice from our guests uh, for psychologists and for coaches about how to approach and how to navigate uh, teams and team cultures. So if you've enjoyed what you've heard today, please do subscribe. Um, You can do that on the website, www.80percentmental.com. And don't forget to tweet us at EPM Podcast. We would love to hear your thoughts on the topic. We would love to hear your questions on the topic. Um, So please do get in touch. Thank you very much for listening and we will see you next time. We won't see you because it's a podcast. (laughs) 